Well, we're talking about uh, times, situations where people would uh, blame a group of people and uh, take out uh, their frustrations in the case of violence on a group of people simply for being members of that group. So it's also uh, defined as, uh, in terms of uh, criminal activities, as hate crimes. When you you say that you know all foreign nationals are responsible for whatever it is. So unfortunately, as you said, since 2008, although it hasn't been uh, so um, the extent of the the violence at that time, it's been around the country um, almost continually. Somewhere around the country, we're getting reports of xenophobic attacks um, since then you know and in fact I think in the last year or so the the number of incidents has increased Absolutely. So the starting with the definition of uh, xenophobia, I think one of the critical issues is that it's often referred to as an irrational fear of foreign nationals. But when we engage with communities across South Africa, there is certainly a nuance uh, to this particular issue. When we developed our report just after the 2008 xenophobic attacks and we engaged with communities across the country, we recognized that many people were saying to us, we are not xenophobic, we don't n- not like foreigners, we just don't want them to be trading in our areas, to be marrying our women, to be doing all of the things that, um, and to be giving uh, resources that, that government should be giving to us. But clearly, there is a, a seems to be some sort of denial about the fact that xenophobia is something which takes place uh, in our communities across the country. Mm-hmm. And I think so. The question that you pose about are we serious while dealing with xenophobia? Uh, we first have to recognise that we we are in a situation where we are dealing with xenophobia before we are able to actually tackle the issue in a comprehensive manner. And I think this is one of the, one of the fundamental challenges we face. We've seen denialism on the part of government as well in certain instances, and I think it's absolutely critical that we recognize these attacks as xenophobic attacks. There, there's certainly a criminal, criminal element involved, and we can't deny that. But I think it's absolutely important that we recognize the problem before we're able to identify solutions. When we engage with folks in the Sharpville area, for instance, it was quite interesting with the, the shop owners argued that foreign national-owned uh, shops were selling bread, for instance, a lot cheaper than what they were able to sell bread for. And so it became an economic issue at the end of the day as opposed to a hatred or an irrational hatred of foreign nationals. For them, it was more about putting food on the table in their words and and the fact that these foreign-owned shops were selling products uh, to communities that they were working in and living in for a lot cheaper became a major issue. So you're right, it's not necessarily irrational. In some instances, it's a very deliberate Mm. attempt to remove these folks from communities uh, for economic interests. so sometimes it's organized by shop owners or business owners who rally up and whip up the emotions of communities because they recognize these foreign nationals as marginalized and poor and often without sufficient rights and, and recourse to, to resolve issues and use them as a scapegoat, as a basis for their own personal selfish economic interests. And so there's a lot of uh, complicated issues connected to questions of xenophobia. It's not purely, as you correctly point out, an irrational hatred of foreign nationals. There are certainly economic interests and of course race plays a very important role. You don't see the sort of happening to foreigners from the United States or Europe in Santon or in Cape Town. Uh, these incidents tend to be limited to township areas where uh, black foreign nationals, usually from Africa or from Pakistan and Bangladesh, are targeted by our South Africans. Mm-hmm. I think this raises very important questions for us as well. The non-nationals often lose confidence in the police because the police haven't been um, supportive of their, when they know that attacks are going to happen, 
or when attacks do happen, particularly on the shopkeepers, as has been mentioned. Um, we've had a lot of reports that the police just stand by, they watch the looting after the fact, they don't take proper case numbers. So the non-nationals then lose confidence in the police, and I think that's a big problem. Having said that, I mean, when we've gone into neighborhoods post-violent attacks to try to work with the community and faith leaders from both the non-nationals and the, the local South African communities to have a proper discussion, do people want foreigners to come back? Nearly always people say, yes, they do, and it's true because they say things like the shops are convenient, they stock what we want, and they are... Um, often cheaper. So you're right that it's um, also, you know, it's a more complicated issue than simply an irrational hatred. But I think when, you know, when you have a loss of confidence in the, in the people who are supposed to keep law and order in communities at, at community level, it exacerbates the problem. And I think one of the other problems is that, yes, there's a, you know, a criminal act may have occurred or um, some kind of crime is committed, but then if you take it out on people who have nothing to do with that incident, so then you start looting all shops, it's, <laughs> it becomes then, I would say, a xenophobic incident. So we've been working, in fact, with the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development over the last few years, and we're hoping this will um, speed up now uh, to introduce hate crimes legislation. So you can both deal with the fact of a criminal act, but you can also see that often these criminal acts can also be motivated by um, or turn into a, a larger scale sort of uh, issue like xenophobia in this case. The government entirely has not done anything, but I do think that what we find is often there's not enough, there is denialism often in government, there is this tendency to say, oh, it's criminal acts, you know, to, to, to ignore the fact that it often escalates into a xenophobic situation and therefore as has been said you know it's not helpful in finding solutions also i think you know that from the leadership in government because of this sense of slightly denying the problem there hasn't been a strong a strong sort of argument put so that instead of addressing the issue and challenging people let's sit down let's see what are really the problems here there's been a sort of denial which then makes it seem almost okay to, you know, maybe vent your frustrations uh, on foreigners. Another, another um, times when we've, and reports have shown that xenophobia, xenophobic violence escalates is when people have uh, protest delivery marches, mm. but they're not allowed to reach the municipal officers. The police turn them back. So the march turns in on itself within the community. And then often the tensions and frustrations are directed at the foreign shopkeepers, for instance, in that neighborhood. And I think that there is definitely a, psyche, a psychological element to this. In my personal experience working in refugee camps in Albania many years ago during the Kosovo and Albanian crisis, I came across a group of children, for instance, playing soccer. And these were typical Eastern European looking kids, fair, dark hair, etc. Um, and after the soccer game, I asked whether I could take a picture of these kids and they all lined up. Some were standing and some were kneeling. They looked sort of very professional, one with a ball under his arms. And I noticed a little bit of a commotion at the back of this uh, group of kids. And there was one kid that they kept on pushing out of the picture. They didn't want him to be part of the picture. And when I went over to investigate what was going on, discovered that this kid was an uh, albino child that they simply didn't want 
to form part of the photograph. And I was confronted by something really interesting. Here were a group of children, a group of survivors who had survived ethnic genocide because they looked different from mm. the, the, the Kosovans, had survived, had come over, and were now discriminating against a fellow survivor of this genocide because he looked different to them. And I think that there certainly says something about us as South Africans who have survived uh, apartheid and the way in which we now treat fellow uh, survivors uh, of situations such as a refugee, the refugee crisis um, or people who move into our country. So there's, there's definitely something that we need to focus on uh, around the way in which we engage with those fellow survivors of, of hate crimes, of genocide um, and of uh, uh, situations, war crimes in their particular countries. Um, and I think that this possibly is at the heart of where we are as a country and what we need to deal with very openly and honestly. Sure. So I think government has played a particularly important role in this regard. We've seen some positive developments. Um, as Roshana mentioned early on, the Department of Justice and now Correctional Services have been doing a fairly good job in terms of pushing for hate crimes legislation. I know the Deputy Minister of Justice in particular um, has been working very hard to ensure that this takes place. On the other hand, the Commission, the Human Rights Commission, is currently in the process of taking government to court, the Department of Home Affairs, uh, for failing to ensure the release of foreign nationals who are being kept at the Lindela Repatriation Centre, which goes to the point raised by Eddie about the situation that foreigners face there. And we are finding a, a, an attitude towards foreigners by the Department of Home Affairs, particularly at Lindela, which is deeply problematic. And so I see we, we, we see both sides of the spectrum within the government. And mm. I think... Uh, secondly, it's also important to note, many people have argued about how South Africans are drinking the blood of foreigners and, and very emotive language, which I completely understand. But it's also important to take some perspective and, and, to, uh, and to suggest that, that this situation takes place in other countries as well. We've seen this in the United States, in Europe uh, and various other parts of the world where xenophobia is perpetrated. Perhaps not to the same degree in terms of violence mm. against foreign nationals that we see here, but this is certainly something that happens not only in South Africa, but in other parts of the world as well. Yes, well, just to come back on some of the other points, I think that the first caller, Alex, who mentioned that selling things cheap is not a crime, is a very good point. And we were pleased that the minister of the new Ministry of uh, Small Businesses also has said already that, you know, maybe we can learn something from the Somali uh, small shopkeepers example and we very much hope that that can be followed up on because it's true you know we have an economic system that's based on competition it's not protectionist and maybe we can see how are best ways to encourage small businesses whether they're South African or non-national to compete well in the market I think Emmanuel I think it was the second caller raised a number of issues to do with home affairs and, you know, I would agree with uh, what the previous uh, panelists have said about the home affairs. But the, the thing of travel documents, the length of status given, access to banking, these are continual issues that come up that make it very difficult indeed for people who are here legally, as, but particularly with refugee status, to, com to be compliant and also to make themselves less vulnerable. For instance, if you can't access banking, then you do tend to have a lot of cash on you if you're a small business. So, you know, one of the solutions could be to see how we can get the, the refugees are entitled to open bank accounts, but there are often a lot of problems around that, how we can resolve those problems. Um, mm -hmm. The low-cost labor issue, I think that's, again, you know, often the, the focus is on the non-nationals being the wrongdoers or the criminals, whereas, in fact, 
you know, for instance, farmers, they know very well what they ought to be paying mm -hmm. laborers. So they are actually breaking South African farmers, breaking South African labor laws by employing non-nationals for less wages. They shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, the trade unions also are working to unionize non-nationals in those kinds of uh, industries, the mines and the farms in particular, because then you don't get that situation. If everyone is charging, is demanding the same wages by law which they're entitled to, who is breaking the law if someone, if the employer is charging, is prepared to pay less? So I think, you know, it's also trying to keep a perspective on the specifics of the situation. I would say it's, in that case, farm, farmers who are the wrongdoers, who are doing, actually breaking our own laws. Um, but yes, I think in general I would agree completely, and we're very happy to hear that the, the Human Rights Commission is addressing the situation in Lindella, because that's been an ongoing issue and an ongoing problem. And the Human Rights Commission has been the the um, organization tasked with uh, monitoring what goes on there and we're very glad to hear they're taking action on this.